I don't want to call them lies, but like little white lies that people tell to their children throughout the day, throughout this, or they just lie because it's easier and they don't want to have to face the, the meltdown that might ensue. But I encourage people who are raising children impacted by trauma to always be as honest as possible because you may be the only person who's not lying to them. Welcome to the Rose Woman Podcast. This show is about living whole, happy, and free your entire life long. And every week, we try to cover something that will open our minds to a new idea, a new perspective, give us more peace and power and pleasure in our everyday lives. I'm your host, Christine Marie Mason. I'm an author, founder, philosopher, trauma-informed yogi, mama, I don't know, all the things. And I'm in the middle right now of running a series on families, because families are the core organizing unit of our culture. And they're nothing like what's depicted in the media or in the sort of nuclear family ideal that's been sold. Very few people live in those sort of families anymore. And I think it's important that we all have a little bit of a window into the experiences that others are having around us so that our empathy and compassion are awakened. So this week's episode is on what's called grand families, a new name for kinship families, for kin caregiving. And I was so surprised to learn that there are 2.7 million children in America alone being raised by their grandparents as the sole uh, guardian. And that is an undercounting because it's estimated that there are another couple million kids who are doing that informally, are going through that process informally. And we say grand families, but I think what we really are saying is either the grandmother or uh, two grandparents perhaps are raising the children because there are only 150,000 grandfathers who are doing it alone. So again, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're talking about the hidden tax of being the primary care provider as a female, uh, that it goes through your whole life long. And then I was also surprised to learn of those grand families, like the, the variety of causes of why they end up with kids again. You're, say, like in your late 40s or 50s or even 60s or 70s, and all of a sudden you've got children to raise again. You thought you were done. And it's so tragic. You know, most of it is mental health, children, the adult children, the children's parents are psychotic or have bipolar disorder, or they have some kind of mental health challenge that renders them not stable, or they've had to, uh, they've been sent to prison for something, or there's an addiction issue that's very common backstory. Uh, there's a illness, a cancer, something like that, where the kids are no longer be able, able to be in their primary home. And then of course, there's the things that are sudden death or accidents and just all the tragic things that happen. So something has to have gone wrong for these kids in order for them to end up with a grandparent. And they often don't know what to do. The grandparents don't have the language and people are just muddling through. So today I decided to invite someone who comes at this topic of grandfamilies from a different perspective. Beth Winkler Tyson has been working with grand families as an advisor and supporter for a while. She has written a lovely book called A Grand Family for Sullivan, 
Coping Skills for Kinship Care Families. It's about a koala bear, and his name is Sullivan. It's very cute. And I was very moved when I was looking at the reviews of the book to see why it was so important. One woman who loved the book wrote, I've been caring for my granddaughter for almost a year. She's four this November, and we have read many books, and most feature a traditional family. There's nothing traditional here. I want to thank Beth for this story. I could almost see the stress melt off of my granddaughter. This story allowed her to see that there are other families just like us, and that it's okay to have all the feelings that come with what we have experienced. So, this episode is about compassion and opening our hearts, and we cover a lot in here on general trauma and on general sanctuary and safety and what makes a good home. So, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Beth Tyson. The first time I heard the term grandfamilies was when we were researching for this episode on grandparents who are raising their children. I didn't even know that was a thing. I know. Most people don't. Most people don't, unless they know somebody who is being raised by their grandparents or they are personally being raised by their grandparents. It's not something that most people know about in the mainstream. Has the term been around for a while and just not socialized? or Yeah, it's a newer term. Um, kinship care is typically the term that is used within the child welfare system. There's just been some like, you know, not so warm and fuzzy feelings about the, the term kinship care. It has been evolving over the years. And I'm not sure who came up with grand family, but it has taken off. And there's many organizations now that call themselves grand families. That's how I came to name the book because I was doing some research I originally was going to use the word kinship care, but then I started doing some research and found the word grandfamily. And I was like, oh, that's so much cuter and nicer and warm and fuzzy. I like that much better. (laughs) Yeah. Not only does it sound like it's better and bigger, like it's so grand, but also that implication of extended networks of people who care. We've been talking about this month, all of the evolving and new ways that people make family and the need for more compassion and love and tolerance and non-assuming that a family is a nuclear family in the traditional way, and also the lack of language for these new relationships. What do you call your husband's ex-wife who's co-parenting your kids? She's like a really valuable person in your life, but you know, no official kinship name. In this case, how do children end up in the situation of being cared for by their grandparents? What are the various things that bring them into that situation? Well, it's, it's varied. Um, it's many different things, and it looks different for each family. What I am used to working with is in that kinship care environment within the child welfare system. So what normally happens is when a child experiences abuse, trauma, neglect um, of some kind, and they are removed from their their biological parents, uh, the first step the child welfare system takes is to find a kin, you know, someone that is related to them in some way or someone that has known the child previously. So has some type of relationship with the child um, because the research shows that that um, enables the best outcomes, long-term outcomes for the children. So they oftentimes find that grandparents are willing to take the children in. And that is how grand families are, are formed. There's also other ways where it's just, you know, mom and dad 
uh, may be addicted to drugs. That's a really, really the main reason that um, children come into their grandparents' care. Um, or there may be a death in, in the family. So maybe a biological parent dies and um, or both of them pass away and they, the children need to be cared for so they are ending up with their grandparents. Um, so these kids are coming into their grandparents' care because of trauma. And adversity. Yeah, I mean, and those are different kinds of trauma. You've got the sort of shock trauma of an accident, right? And then the more developmental trauma of being neglected or being in a home that's chaotic, right? I'm I'm sort of curious because I think there might be a bias on the side of developmental trauma that if the grandparents raise children who are addicts or abusers or something, how are they going to do better by the children of those of their, their by their grandchildren? Uh, versus somebody who's like, whoa, I'm midlife. I thought I was done with this and I'm going through this tragedy where my child passed away and now I've got their children to raise, which is feels like two very different dynamics and probably some judgment in there uh, on my part, like bias or preconceived ideas. So maybe speak to the one that is more prevalent in your experience and then we could talk about the others. How, how do you know if a grandparent's ready to care for a child again? Yeah, that's the hard thing. I mean, these are emergency situations. Oftentimes the grandparents are called, you know, in the middle of the night or, you know, just moments after um, something tragic has happened. So there really is no time to make the decision. It's, you know, this child is either going into the foster care system and we will place them with a stranger or you can take your grandchildren in. And it's very spur of the moment. It happens very quickly. Oftentimes children leave their homes without any clothing. They show up in care and in the care of their grandparents without their toys, their their clothing, their their favorite teddy bear, their blankets, their pillows. They don't they come in to care with nothing. And the grandparents, they don't have a crib. They don't have a car seat. They don't have, you know, all these different things that, you know, a young parent would have. It can oftentimes be an emergency situation, um, an emergency placement for the children for their safety. And so because they're family and they're blood related, um, of course, there needs to be checks and balances. But I think that oftentimes the grandparents have to take them in suddenly because they don't want them to become part of the foster care system. Yeah, I remember maybe six, seven years ago in California, uh, they have an option to, to be not a general foster parent, but an emergency foster care parent, where you have to go through the same training, but you take children on super short notice or you take them for a week or two until they can get a more permanent placement. And those kids show up like super, uh, super frozen or acting out. Usually it feels like they're showing up like very buttoned down and afraid. So how do you, how do you work with a child who is in that situation, maybe repeatedly traumatized, or maybe just suddenly having some kind of shock trauma in a way that minimizes the impact and lets it pass through them and create the most useful transition, if that's even possible. That's the subject of your book, right? Yes, yes. From my experience, what I try to work on with families is building trust. So the number one thing that is broken um, when a child experiences trauma is their sense of trust and safety in the world. And without that, that's the foundation for everything else. And without trust and safety in the world around you, you can't go on to bigger tasks such as, you know, learning and developing properly and achieving and succeeding in school and in relationships. So I help families try to reestablish, reestablish that sense of trust and safety in their homes. And I try to make that the number one priority for them and kind of let all the other 
expectations go to the wayside for some time um, so that they can really focus on re-engaging the relationship and um, re-establishing a, a safe environment for the child. That looks like, you know, basic relationship skills and teaching um, grandparents how to be very empathetic and validating of the child's experiences, um, letting them have their emotions, not saying things like, don't cry, everything's fine, you'll be okay. You know, those things can feel very invalidating and, and um, hurtful to a child who's been through trauma. So I teach families all about that healthy, empathetic, um, respectful communication with children. Um, and then it's, you know, it's also about being very honest with the children about what's going on, but in an age-appropriate way, which is why I wrote the book, A Grand Family for Sullivan, was because I, I felt like a lot of the grand families I was working with were having such a hard time explaining to the children what was going on. And so the children had no idea why they were at grandma's house. And without knowing why your whole life has changed suddenly, how can you do any other bigger tasks in life, really? How can you begin to heal if you don't even know why you're in somebody else's home and you've lost all your things and you're not with your mom and dad and your world's upside down. You know, I, as I was working with these families who were struggling so much, I wanted to bring a book to help sort of bridge the divide, right? To try and like help, help these families find a way to talk about these really hard things. Also a way for me as a therapist and a social worker to um, connect with the children and the families through a book, you know, to say, Hey, look, I, 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 see what is happening here. And I have this book that might be helpful to you. You know, will you read this book with me? And that's just such an easy way to sort of start conversation with young kids. So the book is, is a tool really for that, to have those hard conversations and explain in an honest and open way and in age appropriate terms, how and why a child is in a grand family and, and being raised by grandparents. It's super interesting too, because what you're talking about creating trust and safety in families or extended family relationships isn't just for times of extreme trauma. That's like the way it's supposed to be, like sanctuary. You come home through the door, oh, I'm totally safe. When my kids were little, I had one kid who was acting out at home, and my friend Petra told me, you know, I never worry when they're acting out at home because it means they feel safe enough to act out. If they're, you know, but if they're, <laughs> if they're doing it in public, it's because they can't do it in their own space. Right. So just creating a where they can be themselves. So, so what, like, if you were giving our listeners a primer and what are the elements of trust and safety and, and sort of this compassion and empathy, what are some things that do create that trust and safety in, in daily life for a child? There's a couple of things. The ones that jump out to me, you know, first are having consistency um, in a, in a home and a family, you know, having that normal routine of things, predictability, uh, these children's lives have changed so dramatically and so drastically and they've been through so much that they really need like consistent caregivers who are going to do what they say they're going to do and they're going to be there at the time they say they're going to be there. And if there's a change coming up, letting the child know ahead of time, so preparing them ahead of time, like, hey, you know, we're doing this later today. Even I even teach families like each morning, like go through and say, you know, this is what will be happening today or even the night before, you know. In the morning, we're going to get up, we're going to go to school, then you're going to come home, we're going to have lunch, then we're going to go to the park and play for a while. But like letting them know ahead of time what's coming next, because when there's been a trauma, your world feels so uncertain, and you're just so confused, and you don't know what's happening next, and you're afraid of what might be coming next, you know, because of all the 
things that have happened in the past, you're like sort of on hyper alert, just waiting for something terrible to happen. So if you know what's coming, you can cut your brain can kind of settle down and say, okay, I, I know what's, what's coming next and I can relax a little bit. I also teach families again, to always be honest and truthful. A, a lot of times, even as, even as a parent, you know, in a traditional dynamic of a family, um, there's, you know, there's these little, I don't want to call them lies, but like little white lies that people tell to their children throughout the day, throughout this, or they just lie because it's easier and they don't want to have to face the, the meltdown that might ensue. But I encourage people who are raising children impacted by trauma to always be as honest as possible because you may be the only person who's not lying to them. You know, there's a lot of um, untruths and hard truths that adults feel afraid to tell children. Um, and so they really need to trust that if you say what, you know, that if, you, if something that you say is really the truth so that they can, again, so that their brain can settle down that hypervigilant state and stop having to constantly search for threats in their environment because that's what their brain is doing um, after they've been traumatized. The brain actually is in that hypervigilant, hyperaroused state searching for threats to their well-being. And one of the ways that you can mitigate that is by knowing that you have a trusted adult who can tell you the truth, even the hard truth. Because if you don't have that, then again, your whole foundation is is wobbly. Yeah, I feel I feel like too even one of the truths that have to be told is we're going to do our best to keep this schedule, but something might happen to change it. And if it does change, we'll work it out together. So that there's also like a not a counter movement to creating so much stability that the promises can't be kept. You know, Muslims. Right, exactly. <laughs> Within a 95%, yeah. of, this is what the day is going to be like. Of course, because things always come up, right? It's not about holding to the schedule perfectly, but being cognizant and aware and, and sort of preventative by letting them know ahead of time, hey, I'm going to tell you, if I know a change is coming, I will tell you. I'm not always going to know ahead of time that change is coming. And I'm sorry that I can't provide that for you. There is some, you know, things that you just can't control. But when I can, I will do my best to tell you the truth and tell you and prepare you for what's coming next. Yeah, this is so great because it's also like building a resilience in the child. In the trauma stuff that I've been exposed to, it seems like there's there are some people who get hit by a trauma and overwhelmed by it, but don't have the social support structure to process it through them. And then it stays with them for a very long time in adaptations that become less and less helpful as they age. And then there are other people who get hit by a trauma, but somehow feel like, I can handle this. I can take this. I can navigate this. Is there anything that you've noticed that's a marker for how some people become more resilient and some people either super contract or crumble? And is there an age an age component to that, like at what point the trauma happens, anything that you can pick out? So I think some of it comes down to temperament, right? Just like the way you were born and your personality and your ability to handle and, and deal with stress. But also, if you had support zero through five years of age, and you had a loving environment and a strong environment, those are the most critical early years um, to develop your sense of strength and resiliency and trust in the world. So if you've had a lot of good, strong relationships up until that point, and then a trauma happens later on, it's more likely that you'll be able to, you know, work it through as long as you have those, again, the supportive, loving relationships in your life. But if you had a rocky start to life, and then, you know, things were, you did have a lot of adversity, and then a, a major trauma happens later on, you're much more likely to struggle and have troubles overcoming that. 
again, it's different for everybody. And that's why trauma is so subjective, right? You can't, we can't judge a person's trauma um, because what's traumatic to one person might not be traumatic to somebody else. And it all really is a personal experience. And so I think it's important to note that there is no criteria that you have to meet to, to say that this is a trauma. It's about how it impacts you personally and how it impacts the child individually. Let's talk about the other side of it. I'm a grandparent I'm a, and I'm waiting. Uh, I'm expecting things to go a certain way. And either my child begins to have, like you were saying earlier, trouble with drugs or an illness or some kind of violence or something in the home or a sudden accident. Like I've got to be simultaneously processing my own grief and confusion as well as trying to show up for the child. What, what advice or support structures are there for the caregivers in this situation? Yes, very little. These are the most vulnerable families, really and truly, that, that we know of right now in this country. Um, grand families receive very little support and have oftentimes fewer resources than other families, such as foster families and adoptive families and traditional families. So, um, yes, the grandparents are also traumatized and going through a trauma because they may have lost a relationship with their their own child. Um, there may, again, have been an accident or death or violence of some kind or drug abuse. So they're grieving as well. And then they are taking in a child who has is grieving and experiencing trauma. So there's a lot of vulnerability there. And oftentimes the grandparents are, are not um, able to help the children through their trauma, right? Because it's just not something that we're taught. I mean, who knows how to do that? It, besides a mental health professional, um, you know, you're not trained in how to help a child process through something as severe as developmental trauma. And, and that's why, again, it's so important that we talk about this community. There's 2.8 million grand families in the United States alone. That number is growing exponentially every day. And that's just grand families. That's a small number of the ones that are documented and known. There's many more than that that are not documented because of informal relationships where mom, you know, drops kids off at grandma's and just doesn't come back for several months and then pops back in again and then back out again. And so there's, there's many more grand families that exist that are not documented in that number of 2.8 million. So, you know, talking about them and building the awareness around helping the children have support in school. Because what we know about adverse childhood experiences is that there's also the flip side. There's the positive childhood experiences. And positive childhood experiences are having trusted and safe adults within the community and, and friends and peers who support these families. And that's a critical component to the healing process as well. And again, just spreading awareness for this and helping other children understand that this isn't a reason to tease another child because a lot of times these kids are bullied in school because, oh, why is your mom so old? Where's your mom? Where's your, why is your grandma here? You know, why are you getting picked up by your grandmother? There's a lot of, you know, that, you know, you're different from me. And, and because of that, I'm going to tease you or, or say hurtful things. And um, by letting people know and teaching children through the book that, you know, this is a, this is a common dynamic that you you will come across um, just because somebody's being raised by their grandparents doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with them or anything to be uh, afraid of. It's, it's usually because of unfortunate circumstances and, you know, building in that empathy and compassion for, for the family. That and I would say there's a whole 
mom social circle or like direct parent social circle that if you are a grandparent, you are probably cut out of. And because of that, like, I think it's one of those moments of awareness. So if you're listening and you're not a grand family and, but you know, kids in your school who are being raised by their grandparents and their parent, they're, they're sort of outside of your social circle, make an effort to reach out and include those kids. Yeah. Absolutely. I hear that time and again, that the grandparents feel so isolated. You know, they're in a different phase of their life. They're not, they're not in the mom group, right? They're not hanging out at the library at story time and, and doing these things. Maybe some are, but it's, it feels very uncomfortable to try and navigate those relationships with a different generation. And so I think that, um, you know, trying to be more inclusive and absolutely reaching out to those families and trying to include them. There are support groups around the country. I actually work for a nonprofit here in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia area called Grand Stepping Up. And it's a, a nonprofit that provides food, clothing, um, trauma-informed therapy, um, legal, a legal, a free legal clinic, free and also with reduced prices, and a support group for the grand families and for the children and all kinds of other activities. So it is becoming a more known about community. And if you do some searching in your area, I'm sure you might be able to find a grand family support group that can help you. I, I love that we're talking to it from all these angles. If you know a child who's traumatized, they're ready to, um, you know, just having a, an understanding that they're going through something really major and they're trying to find their center and being compassionate in that way, not keeping it a secret from the school and the family networks and all that stuff, but letting people know that what you're, what you're, the child is going through. Then I hear you saying that as a person who is giving care, that there are certain steps that you can take to create stability and empathy and just allowing the child's nervous system to sort of unwind in their own due time and also telling them the truth. Um, and then this piece, like if you are a grandparent, it can be exhausting. It's, you know, you're supposed to be at the time of life where you're sitting back and gazing upon all you have wrought and enjoying it, you know, and suddenly you're like back in the midst of of all of the things. And so much has changed technologically. The math has changed, you know, social has changed and, and that there's support available for you. And if you're just a person in the community who is very interested in how many kinds of different families exist out there. Last week, we talked about doses or the networks of donor siblings that are emerging and that how that's forming a kin network. You know, knowing that there's so many kinds of families and broadening your lens to understand what people might be going through and being more inclusive. And then because it's an economic burden, people don't have a lot of the materials. It's like coming up with everything that children need um, all at once. So uh, finding local places to donate to in your area, grand families, grand stepping up, those kinds of things. So tell us about the book. How did you, how was the process for you? Did you write it? Did you illustrate it? So I wrote the story. I did not illustrate it. I had it professionally illustrated uh, by a wonderful, talented artist who captured the essence of the book, like first try. After he read my manuscript, he told me that he cried because it was, it just it touched his heart so much. And um, it is an emotional book, but it has a realistic and, and happy ish ending. I didn't want to, I didn't want to wrap it up with a bow and give it like the perfect ending. Cause oftentimes these situations do not have that happy ending of, you know, reunification with mom and dad. So um, I kept it open. I kept it an open ending, but also positive, hopeful 
um, way to close things up. And the story really was written just from my own real life experience with, with kinship families. I kind of molded together several families I worked with and came up with like the most common problems and themes that I saw. And most of the time it was children with explosive anger and, and sort of taking out their emotions on their new family environment and their new home. And um, so helping children understand why they are in care and also helping the grandparents in the story to see like, oh, underneath all that anger is really fear and sadness. So I wrote the story to help people understand that anger is a secondary emotion. It's not, it's not the, the core emotion. The core emotion is fear and sadness. And if you can look beneath all the behaviors, um, you'll, you'd be heartbroken. Um, you, would, you would understand why they are acting the way they're acting. So I, I wanted to um, help the grandparents understand it from that angle, help the kids who are reading the book feel less alone, like, oh, other kids are doing this, other kids get angry too. Um, and then within the story are coping skills for the children. It's about slowing down and, and realizing that, you know, these feelings come and go and it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to be angry. The feelings come and go and eventually if you let the feelings like sit with you, eventually they pass. So yeah, it's a really sweet story and it talks about how Sullivan has a big question. You know, his big question is why do I have to live with you, grandma? You know, why why did I have to leave home? It's his big question that's causing him lots of trouble and it's causing him to act out. And so when, once grandma answers that question, he's able to release all of his emotions and begin his healing process. That's beautiful. Do you also find a degree of self-blame in children? Like, did I do something wrong to make this happen? Oh, yeah. And I, I say that in the book. It says, and that's where it always gets, <laughs> I think that's where the tears come out. For some people who read it, it said, did I do something wrong? Why can't I live with mom and dad? Did I do something wrong? And grandma says, you didn't do anything wrong, Sullivan. This isn't your fault. Your mom and dad uh, can't keep you safe. And I, I'm here. I will keep you safe. Um, so it really, it really is about um, helping them understand. I know I'm tearing up. <laughs> um, it really is about helping them understand it's not their fault. What brought you to this work? Personally, did you know where you wanted to be? My mom passed away when I was in my 20s, suddenly. And I had been working at that time in like corporate America doing the, you know, the office job thing. And I just realized like life is so short. I really want to do something that is more meaningful to me. And I went back to get my master's degree in counseling. And after I graduated, coincidentally through a friend that I was in school with, I had a job opportunity with an organization called Robin's Nest in New Jersey. And it was for the foster kinship and adoption program. And I started working there as my first job out of grad school. And I just fell in love with these families. I mean, they just, they just really touched my heart because I could, I could really relate to their loss because at the root of all of this is an extreme intense loss and grief that often gets shoved under the carpet. You know, nobody's addressing the, 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 the grief and the loss that goes on in these families. I could really relate to that as someone who had suddenly lost my own mom. And um, I just, it just became a passion of mine to, to help them as much as I possibly could. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for the book. 
We'll put a link to the book in the show notes if you know anyone who's going through it or if you just want are interested. Or in my case, you know, like it's almost like reparenting yourself to be told that. You know, I also lost my mom. My mom died when I was 11. And I, my grandmothers on both sides were, they were in my life before. So it wasn't a shocker for my brother and sister and I. But it was um, a shocker in so many other ways that to just to have someone presence with you. So maybe that's you, whoever you are out there. Maybe you're just the person who presences and says, hey, that was really hard and it wasn't your fault. Provides a little sanctuary and a little consistency for these kids who were sort of stuck in the middle of it. And I want anybody out there who needs a little bit of support to promise me that you won't keep it a secret, you won't try to be tough, you won't try to hold it all yourself, but you'll lean out and reach out to one of these organizations or to your neighbors and just say, hey, I need some loving. I need some community. Yes, exactly. Yeah. For the 5 million of you or so, it's what I'm hearing, 2.8 official and then a lot more not official. Not to even mention all y'all who are you know, active grandparents, helping with homework, doing the daycare, picking up on the weekends, all the stuff that, you know, a, a young family needs today in order just to make it economically. The multi-generational family is really returning in a lot of ways just, just to pull things together, even when there's no active trauma. So if you're out there and you're caregiving, just make sure to get the support you need. Is there anything you'd like to say before we close up? Anything you want to include? Um, just that if you are looking for support and more resources, I have a website. It's BethTyson.com. And on there, I have a blog, and it focuses on childhood trauma, helping children through parenting, you know, trauma-informed parenting, trauma-informed education, and lots of resources on there. I have some free webinars on my resources page, and you can sign up for my, news, my newsletter and my blog there. Um, and then I also have a Facebook group just for it's a more general topic. It's called Emotiminds, and it's for anybody who's interested in improving the emotional well-being of families. So I have many therapists in there, teachers, and um, parents who just want to learn and grow uh, in their emotional well-being within their own family. So I'd, I'd love for you to join me in either of those places, and we can continue the conversation. Emotiminds. I can't imagine that there's anybody out there who isn't interested in families having better emotional communication. Yes, yes. I lo I've been I've been really loved the group. I started it last summer. I have about a thousand members. It's just a really great place for me to share information. So it's it's like free free educational material where I share in like real life terms and I share my own stories about you know, my own parenting struggles. And, you know, I don't, I don't have all the answers. I don't have this all figured out either. I'm just doing the best I can. But I figure if there's some things I have found that have helped me and have helped the others I've worked with that maybe it will help someone else too. That's right. One of the things we say here every week is you don't have to do it alone. No. No matter what it is. No. <laughs> no matter what it is. There are other people who are thinking about and, and uh, working on that same struggle. You th I know you're a unique presence in the world, you beautiful thing. But there are a lot there are a lot of people who are probably working with the same concerns and we can find each other now, thanks to the magic of the web. Okay, we'll find you on Emotiminds, we'll find your book. And thank you again for all the beautiful work you're doing. Thank you for having me. It's a it's a pleasure and a wonderful opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you. If you know someone who's living through a grand family experience, 
send them this episode. Just pause right now and send them a link to this episode. You can find me at the.rose.woman on Instagram or my company at rosebudwoman on Instagram, rosewoman.com on the web. And we make amazing body care products for women, intimate skincare, sexual wellness uh, for menopause, for pre and postnatal, and really the entire life cycle of your gorgeous, perfect body and its miraculous life-giving capacities. Thanks for joining me and see you next time on The Rose Woman.